Lord, we count it a great privilege, as we do always, um, to learn more about you, to understand your ways, to open the word, to be instructed by the work of your spirit. Lord, I pray specifically tonight that we would, well, first, I pray that we would grow and um, truly adoring and savoring and treasuring you. Uh, the, the sufficiency of Christ is overwhelming, and I pray that we would not see it as just common and, and basic. Um, it should absolutely floor us. I pray that as we spend uh, probably the next, uh, you know, this week, next week, and then in January, a majority of the month, looking at the life of Joseph, it's incredible the things you do. And so, Lord, I pray that rather than being impressed with Joseph, we would be impressed with Joseph's God. Um, and I pray that you would help us to, to keep that straight. Um, Lord, I pray also uh, during the holiday season, as there's just many needs, um, many concerns, many anxieties, I pray that you would help us to have just proper care in our life and to consider the things that need to be considered and, and not consider other things. I pray that you would keep us from foolishness and keep us from being overwhelmed by things that shouldn't be overwhelming, that aren't designed to be overwhelming. I pray that you would keep us flexible according to your plan. I pray that you would stretch us over the holiday um, to grow uh, more in accordance with you and your will as opposed to the culture that surrounds us. Um, I'm thankful for the example we'll get to see in Joseph's life of that tonight. Uh, Lord, we are very thankful. We love you uh, immensely. And I pray that you would guide our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Genesis 40, please. Genesis chapter 40. In our last study, we found that uh, strapping young Joseph, who is strapping and good-looking because his mama is Rachel and Nalia, um, caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. Uh, Potiphar is a guy who is high up in the ranks, uh, an officer for the Pharaoh. <clears throat> and Potiphar's wife is not a very classy lady. She's one that you steer clear of. Um, but Joseph caught her eye, and though her advances persisted, Joseph did the right, he did the right thing and ran away um, and refused to go to bed with her. As a reward for doing the right thing, Joseph was thrown into prison. One theme that we've previously considered is uh, that of God's providence. We talked about it weeks ago as we started into this section of Scripture. And we continue to keep our eye on it because God's providence is a really encouraging thing. It's a really uh, um, light-shedding thing where when there seems like darkness, where there seems like uncertainty, where there seems like um, just flat-out calamity, uh, like things aren't going right, we see that God's hand is moving and He's actually very active He's not just sitting and passive and waiting. He's very active in uh, all the big picture plans, which is why we walk by faith and not by sight, because we can't always see the big picture plans. If we could see the big picture of everything all the time, that would not be walking by faith. That would be walking by sight. And when you're able to walk by sight, you don't need faith. And so we, we see how trustworthy God is in this whole section of Scripture as we watch Joseph walk by faith and as we are encouraged to do the same. The situation and the circumstances do not define Joseph's fate. God does. 
God is very much at work. What are some of the ways that we've observed this? Just in the last few weeks, considering Joseph's life, what are some of the ways that we have observed God's hand of providence, God at work, circumstances not being all there is? Yes, God's favor on everything he does. The end of chapter 39 says, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. (coughs) What else? Bless you. Sorry? How do we see God's hand of providence in Joseph's life thus far? I'll give you a hint. He's not dead. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So depending on your perspective, that could be a great story or a really horrible story. Since we know the perspective that God's involved, we know it's not a horrible story necessarily. Um, We see God's hand all throughout this. Who was the brother who said, let's not kill him? Reuben. And did Reuben do that because Reuben is a man of high moral standards? No. No. Reuben was the mandrake son. And so... um, what we see in, in the brothers was this thing where it looked like they had a plan to say, you know what, it doesn't do any good to just kill him uh, because then there's no real profit in just killing him. So what we'll do is we'll sell him into slavery. So we see God's hand all over it. Joseph, at this point, is really the only known Christian in Egypt. To, to, to our knowledge, as we're reading through this, he's in Egypt now and he's a Hebrew. He would be what we would call a Christian, a, a God follower. And, uh, and we find that personal integrity really, really matters. Personal integrity is a big deal. Many men would maybe not have run away the way that Joseph did. I mean, you really, when you take it all into account, Joseph is a good-looking man. Uh, To the best of our knowledge, he is a virgin, and he also has very little chance of being married since he's a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison. He has no rights, and he's uh, being beckoned by um, a... uh, a lady of great power, you know, Potiphar's wife, yet he runs away and he shows personal integrity. Joseph does not have an accountability partner. Joseph does not have a body of believers to run to. He's on his own here. And my hope is that at least for us, that this situation would really cause us to rightly value what it means to be members of one another in Christ. Because when you observe a situation like this, it doesn't get us very far to just say, hmm, bummer. We should rightly value what it means to be members of one another. We should rightly value being held accountable by other people who care about our soul. And we should rightly value shooting straight with one another, taught and teachable and being held accountable. And Joseph's situation sheds light on that for us because I'm thankful he had personal integrity, but I'm thinking, man, he really could have used a church. Joseph really could have used a church in Egypt. But there weren't many Christian churches in Egypt at the time. There were none, in fact. Um, And in the close of our last chapter, we found Joseph has been given charge of the prison, which is unique. It says something about a man when he's sent to prison and then like given the keys, right? It says something about his character and his integrity. Uh, He's been given charge of the prison. What does this reveal to us about Joseph and his character? What does it reveal? He's trustworthy, consistent. That's such a big deal. Same guy behind closed doors or prison doors that he is outside. 
What else? God showed favor on him, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yes, that's huge. He's diligent, he's thorough, he has follow through, he's got a good hard work ethic, and there's it's something worth observing even to an Egyptian who thinks Pharaoh's God. It's something worth observing. The way he acts makes him more trustworthy than the other prisoners. So people are able to observe. I mean, if you find yourself in a circumstance like at work or at school and you're thinking, this stinks, I don't want to be here. Everyone else here is a pagan and all I have to do is listen to their filthy mouth and their horrible stories and I love Jesus and this stinks. Well, consider Joseph. He was a Hebrew in an Egyptian prison, but his character was of such that the guards were like, hey, let's put that guy in charge. I know he's a prisoner, but let's put him in charge. I mean, Import yourself into the prison. Think about how crazy that is, that he was given charge over the prison as a prisoner. Um, and then at the end of the chapter, 39, it says, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So that's why in my prayer before we started, that's why I said I, my hope is that we would not just praise Joseph, but, but praise the God of Joseph. Because it's easy to say there's a difference between Joseph succeeded in everything and God made Joseph succeed in everything. There's a difference between the two. And as we're recounting the deeds of the Lord, it's good to mention the Lord in the process. Chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Now, <clears throat> an extended length of time, two new prisoners, the cupbearer of the king, followed by an extended length of time. It seems as though Moses, when he's recounting all this, he wants us to know it wasn't like day one, charge of the prison. Day two, meet cupbearer baker. Day three, it's not like that. There's time here, and we need to consider the time because being the only Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison uh, is, a, is, is a big, um, hard trial. And, uh, and he has certainly tried through the ups and downs of this. A few cultural observations here. What does the cupbearer do? Does anyone know? He makes sure there's no poison in the drink. That's the downside of his job. What's the upside of his job? <laughs> drink the Pharaoh's wine all day, I guess. At least taste it. I'm sure there's a whole lot of, okay, I didn't die, you know. Um, uh, what, what, what else is the upside of his job? What, what are some, what, what do you think that guy's job looked like? Upside, downside. Uh-huh. Very true. What does he have to be? Trustworthy. That's a big deal. Okay. How do you screw up that job? What do you all think? You could let poison get to the king. You wouldn't get fired. You'd probably just get killed. Um, make your boss mad. How, how can he make the Pharaoh mad? Wow. You're a conspiracy person, aren't you? Yeah. No. 
No, no. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. He's got the inside scoop on stuff. He could have spilled the beans on something. He could have served cheap box wine. He could have done a number of things here that were horrible and frowned upon. Um, but um, all we know is that he had a job where he was very trusted and it was a high-ranking thing and he screwed up. And it's the kind of job you don't screw up in. Okay, what's the baker do? I'll give you a hint. The, the, the title says something about what he does. He bakes. Um, the baker uh, would likely bake the things that needed baking and give them to the Pharaoh. And uh, if it doesn't taste good, I guess you get put in prison. A bad meal. A bad meal with cheap wine and Pharaoh's like, y'all are done. Your rank and standing doesn't really seem to matter much in Egypt. Now, if you offend, you are imprisoned. It, does, it didn't say they like hit Pharaoh or something like that. It, it, they just, it, they didn't, they weren't pleasing. They offended and they were imprisoned. Now listen, in both Potiphar and Pharaoh, what do we see a complete lack of? God, and thereby mercy and grace. There's no grace there. Um, this is an interesting observation. This is what it would be like if none of your offenses were excused. This is what it's like. I find it interesting that some of the parallels we'll see here, but if you lived in a place where none of your offenses were overlooked and you were just imprisoned and there was no mercy and grace, this is what it would look like. Um, this is what life would actually be like under the law. See, we're observing this. No grace, no mercy. That's like life under the law. Um, in Pilgrim's Progress, something we're reading through this as a staff right now. It's like we have staff devotionals. There's a difference between devotionals and teaching and preaching. But in Pilgrim's Progress, this is an allegory. That means everything's like something um, in the whole book. And this guy, Christian... See, he was given that name because he's a Christian, and uh, he's on a journey, which is the Christian's journey. You're starting, you'll start to see this. And he's got a friend named Faithful. Faithful is actually named Faithful because uh, he's faithful. And Faithful and Christian get along because they're, they're on their way to the same place, which is heaven. Y'all, y'all catching on? That's this book. Um, it's not very subtle at all. This is the least subtle book I've ever read. But... There's a part where he comes up, faithful comes up against this guy, Apollyon. Apollyon is this feigned enemy who's covered in scales and he has smoke in his belly and he's, and he's a, a fiendish fiend and wants to strike down Christian and faithful and they both met with him at separate times and it says this, but dear brother, hear me out, said faithful. Faithful's talking to Christian. They're both followers of God and on their way to the celestial city, which is the celestial city. As soon as the man overtook me, he's speaking of Apollyon in this battle. He was but a word and a blow, for he knocked me down and laid me out for dead. So he's saying, I came up against Apollyon and he just cracked me and I'm done. But after I had somewhat come to my senses again, I asked him, why'd you do that to me? He said it was because of my secret inclination to follow after Adam the first. So Apollyon is saying, you secretly want to be like your uh, forefather in the faith, Adam, and you're a sinner, and that's why I struck you. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the chest and beat me down backward. So I lay at his foot 
as if I were dead like before. When I came to myself again, I cried for him to have mercy. But he said, I don't know how to show mercy. I don't know how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. No doubt he would have made an end of me, except that another individual came by and caused him to stop. Who was it that made him stop, asked Christian. I didn't know him at first, answered Faithful, but as he went by, I saw the holes in his hands and in his side. Then I concluded that he was our Lord. After this, I went up the hill. That man who overtook you was Moses, explained Christian. He spares no one. And he doesn't know how to show mercy to those who transgress the law. That's the point of the law. You don't know how to show mercy. I know it very well, replied Faithful. It wasn't the first time he met with me. He was the one who came to me when I lived securely at home and told me he would burn my house down on my head if I stayed there. That's what the law does. The law is very subtle. It's like saying, I'm going to burn your house down on your head. You're going to die and there's no mercy. And you're sitting there saying, I really hope for some mercy. And the one with the holes in his hands, anyone, any guesses, anybody? Yeah, Jesus, obviously. Then Christian said, but didn't you see the house that stood at the top of the hill where Moses met you? Yes, said Faithful, and the lions were there. And he goes on telling the story. But the point is this, that's what the law does. You heard uh, Brad's sermon a few weeks ago about the harmony between the gospel and the law. And that's where we, that's, um, that's something that's very necessary. Merciless Moses The fleshly and the carnal, in fact, are not capable of showing mercy. The ways of Potiphar and Pharaoh should cause us to first reflect on the law, which is merciless, and then on Christ, who blesses his children with new mercies every morning. Y'all hear that? Like, put this together. You look at Potiphar, no mercy. You look at Potiphar's wife, no mercy. You look at Pharaoh, no mercy. This should remind us of the law. The law does not know how to show mercy. If you start a Christian band, call it Merciless Moses. It's a great name. Consider. Remember Ben's example of the consuming fire at Man Gulch a few weeks ago? That God is a consuming fire and Jesus takes what we were due and we approach the throne with a loving embrace now? That's the picture that is painted here in this book and then here in Genesis 39 and 40. These new mercies every morning that we receive, you can consider Joseph, and uh, he gets to wake every morning uh, with the Lord on, uh, on his side, or knowing that at least that he's on the Lord's side. But these mercies that are new every morning, we talk about it a lot. I mean, around here, it's kind of a lingo that's pretty normal. We thank God for his mercies that were new every morning. Well, I thank God today that for his mercies that were new this morning. But consider that God does not greet us every morning with new mercies as a gesture of, a gesture of niceness. He does not um, greet us with these just as saying, hey, I just, just want to give you a heads up, new mercies. I'm just being nice. He does it so that all of his purposes will be accomplished. God greets us with new mercies every morning so that his purposes will be accomplished. It's not a free pass where he winks at our sin. Steve Roberts used that phrase, winking at sin, a few months ago, and I cannot get it out of my head because it's happened so often where we'll kind of be like, yeah, I'm kind of guilty of that, wink. Oh, he's just kind of like that, wink. And that's problematic for people who are supposed to pursue holiness for the glory of God in all things. So when God greets us with new mercies every morning, he's not saying, wink, I know you were a bad boy yesterday and last night, wink. 
He's giving us new mercies so that his purposes will be accomplished. What I mean is that it's God withholding from us again this morning that which we deserve, namely his wrath. So when you wake up in the morning and say, new mercies, you might as well also say, no wrath. It reminds you what you're being saved from, him, not just guilt over your sin. Enjoy these mercies by putting God's glory on display. That's what we see Joseph do in his life. We're going to get to observe it in these coming chapters. It's really great. But you enjoy the new mercies every morning by aiming to put God's glory on display and kill sin. If there were no mercies this morning, this morning, if there were no new, new, if there were no new mercies this morning, the world would be burned up with the consuming fire, and eternal separation from God would begin. The only reason that creation continues in this existence is that God's glory would fill this created earth. And this morning, with new, new mercies, we moved one step closer with those new mercies. Do y'all see that? Does that make sense? It's really beautiful. And I don't want us to not see it. And when I said, do y'all see that, I didn't get... God gives us mercies not just to wink at our sin and be like, it's okay, I know, you stink. He gives them to us so that we can accomplish his purposes. Because he saves us from himself so that we can glorify him. Look at verse 5. The cupbearer and the baker. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Joseph is observant. That's good. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, I wonder if this was a regular occurrence, dreams without interpretation. And as I studied, I was like, well, why were they troubled by it? I mean, I have dreams all the time. I don't have a clue what they mean. They're generally very weird. Um, why were they so troubled over this? And what I found was that it caused their faces to be downcast. And the reason is that outside of prison, these two guys would always have direct access to mediums or the magicians of the time. And they could go to the mediums and say, tell me what my dream says. And the mediums would say, okay, your dream says this. There was no waiting there was no timeline. It was like, okay, it says this. And so the, the mediums were like the palm readers of the time. And we've seen this before that um, they always have an answer. And that's the difference between God and mediums or God and magicians or God and palm readers is that sometimes God will tell you that you need to wait. But for the medium or the magician or the palm reader, if you have the money, they have the time. And if you have access to them, they'll tell you something that you'll want to hear. And they want you to like what you hear because then you'll come back later. Does that make sense? There's not, yeah, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. I'm not even going to go into it. Joseph essentially says, interpretations belong to God. And I belong to God, so let me take a crack at it. That's what he's saying here. Take note that Joseph did not capitalize on the situation for personal gain. Consider Joseph's, that's the thing, throughout this whole story of Joseph. Remember, there's like 13 chapters dedicated to him in Genesis. You see the circumstances, and I think that many of us would tend to handle them differently than maybe Joseph did. He is in a horrible circumstance. He is in prison. He is a Hebrew. He is in Egypt. He is away from his family. He does not have anyone there 
who knows him or his ways or his upbringing or his heritage, who will hold him accountable in anything. Yet he doesn't even capitalize on the situation for personal gain. He could have said, I have the power to interpret your dreams. My name is Joseph, and I'm here to help. He could have done that. He could have said, I'll tell you a secret, but it's going to come at a cost. He really could have capitalized on the situation for his gain. Instead, he speaks the truth and he gives God the glory. There's never a time where speaking the truth and giving God the glory is bad. Even if you're a Hebrew in an Egyptian prison. What are some applications of this for us in our daily activities? What are some ways we could inadvertently use God as a means for personal gain? Think about your job. Think about where you spend your day. What are some ways where we could take some cues from Joseph to make sure we're not using God as a means of gain for ourselves? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. It's huge. There are so many times where you find yourself in a situation where someone wants some insight, someone wants some encouragement, and we might try to be, I mean, it could be something financial, and you might be good with finances and be able to just say, oh, you need to move this over here and do this. By the way, keep your checkbook balance. Blam. Or you say, well, God shows us in the Word that what stewardship is, and you could point to God just the same way Joseph did. If it's two moms talking, hey, I want to choke my kids today. Well, what do you think about that? And then another mom could say, don't choke them. Okay, great. Or you could say, well, you know, the Lord's helped me in remembering that I'm showing the, the fruit of the Spirit to my kids, and one of those things, two of those things, gentleness and patience, are hard. But when I choke them, it's hard for them to see gentleness and patience. And so I would encourage you to do what God said here. You see what I'm saying? I mean, there's so many different scenarios where we can put God's glory on display or be tempted to just say what we want, sound like we're smart, even though we're quoting the Bible in some things, and uh, do it for our own, um, our own glory and our own fame, our own encouragement. A lot of us will give counsel and we want people to walk away saying, they're so smart. When you give counsel to someone, do you want them to walk away saying that person is awesome? Or do you want them to say that God's awesome? Do you want them to recount what you said? Or do you want them to recount what God said? That's a big difference. I mean, there's a difference between the two. I mean, if what you said is what God said, that's good. But it would also be better to tell them God said that, not you. Because his wisdom is absolutely infinite. Look at verse 9. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph, I was thinking about this, that Joseph is, some people might look at Joseph and say, yeah, I'm sort of a lone ranger like Joseph. Me and him are kindred spirits. He was like, they faked his death. He was thrown into an Egyptian prison. He's a Hebrew slave with no rights. You're probably not very much like Joseph at all. Um, 
And what's happening here is we have this story where God's using a real particular individual to set the stage to really bring his people into a picture that says, this is what it means to be a people. This is why your story is the story of a people. And so there is this personal integrity that we can see here, but we see that it is not the ideal circumstance because God is bringing him out of Egyptian prison to a place of power to overseeing a people who are taken care of and imprisoned and then delivered, and God just shows his absolute glory over everything. And so this whole process is really intriguing because we get to see Joseph in these intimate moments where he has his personal integrity, but we also know that this is not the most ideal circumstance because God's moving him in a direction. God's big plan for Joseph's life isn't that he would just be a good prisoner here, but that he would work in such a way that God's glory would be put on display more and more and more because God's aim is to fill the earth with his glory. Look at verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. It's an interesting verse. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches... And are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph shows great wisdom here. He is true to God's interpretation. He is not tickling the cupbearer's ears here. I want us to make sure we get this. When he realizes that God intends to restore the cupbearer, he says what's true. He says to the cupbearer, this is what God is doing. God gave him wisdom. God gave him insight to be able to interpret the dream. It was a work of the Spirit, and he interpreted the dream for the cupbearer. And he says, all that I'm asking is that you don't forget about me. I'm here because of a lack of justice. So you don't see him saying, I'll tell you, but you've got to make me a promise, man. Promise me. I'm not going to tell you your dream until you promise me. Make a promise. Pinky swear. He doesn't do that. He tells him what it is. He communicates what God wants communicated. And then after that's done, he says, and please remember me when things are going well for you. Because frankly, things are going so well here. We don't see two pages of whining and recounting how hard it was this morning at breakfast when they fed him bad food. He just says, I'm here because of a lack of justice. Please remember me. So I would ask the question, I think the, this, this passage begs the question, do you suffer well? Uh, it's probably a question you've thought of or heard before, but it's really pretty appropriate. Do you suffer well? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. 
Ja. Ja, ja. Ja, this model. Uh, turn to Second Timothy. This this is a, a good little satellite. There could have been a real. I mean, a lot of people give way to the flesh here, and Joseph could have just looked at the cupbearer and said, you know what the Lord's telling me uh, there, cupbearer guy? Um, I am here to help you. And if Pharaoh gets you out, it's because I'm supposed to help you succeed in all things at all times for lots of money. And, I mean, he could have just gone on and interpreted this dream knowing God told me he was going to restore him. But if I link my thing, like I want, I want to link my desire here to that, then, then maybe it will, it'll be good for me. He could have really spun it a thousand different ways. Or he could have said, I'm just going to tell the cupbearer what I think maybe the cupbearer wants to hear on the off chance that he gets out of here and says, hey, I like that guy. He told me fun, happy things. And I'm going to, I'm going to give him a job out of prison, outside of prison. 2 Timothy 4. Verses uh, 3 through 5. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Joseph is teaching something here. He's not like getting up in front of the class and teaching, but, but he's, he's teaching something here about God. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Those are such encouraging words to a guy like Joseph. Do work, man. Tell them about God. And when they say, uh, I don't know how that sounds, you, you keep telling them about God. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Even if you're a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison and you've got this slight chance to get out if you spin it to your benefit. That was 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. You know, that's a good satellite, too, as, as it would happen. What a coincidence. Um, yeah, let's read it. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's very appropriate. They go hand in hand. Paul wrote the letter to Timothy. He wants him to see all these things. And he shares about suffering well. He shares about stick to the task. It's about God. At this point, Joseph is a Hebrew. It doesn't matter that he's in Egypt. He can't just adopt whatever ways he wants. He's supposed to do what God tells him to do. And otherwise, Joseph sits idle. Um, Interesting, in that 2 Timothy 4 passage, it says, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, I'm not trying to make a big stretch here, but consider Joseph in prison. I was thinking this week about passion and how there's some things I'm naturally passionate about. 
And there's some things, uh, not so much. I would offer, giving these verses, given this, these verses and then what Joseph is going through, that it's not necessarily the case that God is eager to find out what you're passionate about and then use that for his glory. Some of y'all might be thinking, ah, wait a minute, wait a doggone minute. <laughs> I've been told otherwise. It's not exactly the case that God is saying, I want to find out what you're passionate about. I want to use you and your passion for my glory. He may do that. But the reality for God's people, maybe particularly for those in a vocational ministry position, which is similar to what Joseph is dealing with here, is that you need to be passionate about what you're told to be passionate about. That's not very appealing, is it? Do you think that Joseph was like, man, I am, I am, God, I'm going to pray to you right now. And I'm going to give this to you. I am passionate about overseeing a prison. No, probably not. But he got into the prison and because he had character and integrity and a hard work ethic, God used him as he wanted to use him. And essentially God said, okay, you don't get to hang out with your brothers anymore. And you don't get to hang out at the house and be your dad's, you know, go-to guy. Um, you don't get to do this, this, and this. Here's what you're going to do. Potiphar's house was cool. That was a good experience for you. However, now you're going to be in prison and you're going to be passionate about overseeing the prison. Okay, Joseph? And Joseph was passionate about overseeing the prison. Joseph's going to go on to be passionate about overseeing uh, Pharaoh's kingdom. It changes along the way. Like for us here at Crosspoint, it's changed along the way. I came on as the worship and or the, the music and youth guy, which turned into worship and families because that's biblical. And then and then uh, now it's different. <laughs> and like there and I don't say that in a bad way. I'm saying that um, as the the landscape changes and God grows a people, there's different responsibilities. And like I spent some time this last week um, considering a lot of what the Department of Labor had to say about the FLSA standards. I have zero passion <laughs> for the Department of Labor and the FLSA standards. There was not a day where I woke up, God, I'm so passionate about Department of Labor things. Will you put me in a position and use me as you see fit? But God says, oh, you're, you need to be passionate about that. Okay. And we change and we move. And for you, you may think, I am not very passionate about working at this kind of place. But God may say, well, guess what? That's where your job is. And I need you to be passionate about it now. I need you to have a good work ethic. And I need you to stick out because you're going to put my glory on display there. Something may change in your family where you find yourself having to care for a loved one. And you think, I got to spend so many hours a day caring for a loved one. I just never, this is not, my passion is over here. And God might be saying to you, your passion needs to be right here. Put my glory on display in it. Is it easy? No, but I'm your God and I'm with you. Just like I was with Joseph in prison. Just like I was with Joseph in the pit. Just like I was with Joseph when he got to overhear his brother saying, do we kill him or uh, sell him? God will change us and along the way we need to be careful not to just only pour ourselves into the things we're naturally passionate about. There will be things where God, there will be times where God will say, your passion needs to change. I need you to be passionate about this. It may seem insignificant, 
But this might lead to something else. This might be all it is, but I need you to be passionate about this thing, and God can turn the corner. I know people whose, whose entire careers have changed. I don't think I'm very passionate about this. God says, no, I need you to be passionate about this. Or not, I need you. You're going to be passionate about this. It happens in a lot of different ways. As y'all are sitting there, I'm sure that y'all are thinking, yeah, I experienced that in this way or that way or this way. Because if we are not okay with changing our passions, as God says, be passionate about this, um, otherwise we'll find ourselves being idle, lacking follow-through, lacking work ethic, lacking character, lacking personal integrity, because we find ourselves in a ho-hum attitude because we think, well, I'm not really doing what I want to do. Is it easy? No. Is Egyptian prison easy for a Hebrew? No. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to be like, it's easy. Y'all do this, and Jesus will have fun at a party. It's every day, birthday party. We'll have cake. It's not what it is at all. But it's for the glory of God, and he may, he may tell you to be passionate about something that you would not otherwise have even been, that would not have even been on your radar. And it'll probably bless you immensely when you say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. For your glory, not my own. And in case you th- you're still not convinced that he wasn't tickling the cupbearer's ears, let's look at what he says to the baker. Verse 16, back in Genesis. Oh, poor baker. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also have a dream. <laughs> now, that's how it'll happen a lot. Like, You'll be waiting, watching what someone's going to say to someone, and they said something nice. You're like, oh, I want to hear you tell me something nice, too. That's what just happened to this guy. Uh, when he saw that the interpretation was favorable, I guess he figured Joseph to only be a guy of favorable interpretations. Maybe Joseph's God was only a God of favorable interpretations. He said, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head. There's a weirdo right there. You know, you're dealing with someone... And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. He's already deemed it has come from God. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat flesh from you. I thought you were the favorable interpretation guy. Can I get a redo? Um, There's a difference between lifting up your head and lifting off your head, and that's what we're seeing here. Um, uh, Things are not looking so good for the baker. Consider this. Consider this point. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the truth suppressors. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the truth suppressors. Too many try to keep peace by keeping quiet. Joseph could have been like, the interpretation for the baker is, um, uh, the crystal ball is getting very fuzzy. I don't really know anymore. You can be dead in three days. Um, consider Romans 1. The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness does what? Suppresses the truth. You cannot be a peacemaker by being a truth suppressor. It's a biblical impossibility. It doesn't work. They don't add up. They don't go together. They don't mesh. I'm a peacemaker. I don't want to say that part of the truth. The truth is the truth ordained as it is so by God. You can't be a peacemaker by being a truth suppressor because peacemakers are not the aim of God's wrath. 
God's wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. You can't be a peacemaker in an act of unrighteousness. You have to tell the truth. Explain this. Okay, are you willing to speak truth even if it might mean that death is coming and nothing's changing? Baker, you're going to die. Are you eager to be the one to share that news? Like you might be the one who's like, hey, cupbearer, man, you got a good week ahead of you. I like telling people the good stuff, but I don't like telling people the bad stuff. Why does Joseph have such boldness in his assessments? Because they're God-given. He's not just winging it and flying by the seat of his pants and saying, I like this, I don't like this. He would never have boldness in what he told to the baker if he was just doing what he wanted to do. When it came to the baker's interpretation, he'd have been like, oh man, I don't, I don't even know how to tell you this, but maybe you should go hide. I mean, I don't know how to say this, but I mean, he, does, he just comes out and says, well, here's what it means. You're going to die. Many of us would likely have said, uh, yeah, the baker's going to die, but I don't want to tell him I'm a peacemaker. Many cowardly preachers do this with the gospel. People are dying and continuing in sin and resisting repentance and forsaking God and forsaking God's design and winging it and offering up strange fire. But for the sake of peace, many of these preachers who have huge opportunity will skip over massive portions of their Bible in an unworthy attempt to keep the peace and not ruffle any feathers. It's unbiblical. You can't be a peacemaker by being a truth suppressor. And it's likely that the baker didn't look at Joseph and say, thanks. He probably looked at Joseph and was like, who does that guy think he is? What a jerk. How dare he say such a thing about my life? Oh, God said the thing about your life. You can't be a peacemaker by being a truth suppressor. I just want to say it again and again because we get that so backwards. Look at verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he knows how to throw a party. He made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the, chief, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, just like the interpretation. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Thanks, chief cupbearer. <clears throat> Pharaoh's not a God-fearing guy. Pharaoh, in fact, thinks he is God. That's the problem here. That's why his party's so screwed up. Pharaoh thinks he's God. And he celebrates his birthday by what he does is he brings up the cupbearer, lifts up his head, and he brings up the baker, and he lifts up his head. Hello, everybody, look at my old cupbaker and, and cupbaker and bearer, whatever, cupbearer and baker. Um, the cupbaker was just killed immediately. But these two guys are here for my party. We're going to have a party today. And in front of all of his guests, he forgives the one because he wants everyone to know what a good guy he is. And he murders the other because he wants everyone to know how powerful of a guy he is. Men with God complexes are all very similar. If you think you're God or you want to be God or you want people to bow down to you like you're God, you'll be a lot like Pharaoh. They want you to see how powerful they are and they want you to long for their approval. And if you don't have their approval, they want you to be fearful of what they might do to you. I've heard this story a lot where the new pastor comes in. There are some churches who have deacons like this, very Pharaoh-esque, 
who, when a new pastor is hired, they decide to throw their weight in around in a fashion similar to Pharaoh, saying, you should really care about my approval. And if you don't, I don't know how long you're going to last around here. Sound familiar? I know guys who have dealt with that. I know guys who have had that very hard conversation with another man who wanted to show to everybody how nice and forgiving he is in front of everybody else and everybody how powerful he is in front of everybody else. You should want that guy's approval. And if you don't have it, you better watch out. That's very Pharaoh-esque or godless. So Joseph, nothing happened to me this week. I'm just passionate about this part of the scripture. It really reveals a lot. I mean, as you're reading through Joseph's life, it's like spotlight, 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 spotlight. It's beautiful. So Joseph was spot on and the cupbearer forgot him. Way to go, cupbearer. Let us not lose heart when we see what seems to be certain escape, yet God shows otherwise. If the story stopped here, that's a sad story. Bummer for the baker, bummer for Joseph. What's next? It doesn't stop there. It goes on. In chapter 41, it says, After two whole years, oh, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. Y'all, y'all have all had that dream, right? <laughs> and they fed on in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. seen it a million times. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on the one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears were swallowed up by the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, like the cupbearer and the baker, whose faces were cast down. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt. I don't just want one, bring them all. And all its wise men, bring the magicians, bring the wise men, bring the, uh, the, the mediums, bring everybody. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. The stage is being set. What are some of the ways that we can observe God's hand of providence in these verses? What's God doing? It's very important while everyone's sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's pretty rare. I was wondering, what happens to an incompetent dream interpreter when the baker's killed for likely a lesser offense. I was thinking about that. All the magicians, bring them all. All the dream interpreters, every single one of them failed that day. And I can't help but happen, I can't help but wonder what might happen to those guys when the baker was murdered at the birthday party as like part of the show. These guys were probably in trouble. First, consider that God has given a godless man a dream that has troubled him. God has made it so no one can interpret the dream. Um, And God has made it to where um, everybody looks like a fool. We're going to end tonight with all of Egypt looking dumb. 
They're all standing there. Do you know what the dream is? Do you know what the dream is? I don't know. Do you know what the dream is? All the while, the Hebrew slave still in prison, forgotten, thank you very much, cupbearer, is ready. He's on deck. He's ready to come in and say, guess what? It does mean something. But right now, we're going to end with all the Egyptians looking ridiculous. Pharaoh looks ridiculous right here. I had a bad dream. Bring me everybody who can tell me something about my bad dream. Pharaoh looks like a sissy and a weirdo. And then everybody who's supposed to be able to interpret dreams can't. It's a great place to end the study tonight. All the Egyptians look dumb. If you know any Egyptians, don't take it personally. Tell them I love them. But here, they all look very silly. Um, So let's pray and thank God for his work in the life of Joseph. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight. We're thankful uh, that you set the stage again and again and again for your glory. There's no clearer sign for us in these verses that, that Pharaoh's not God than him sitting here troubled over his dreams that he can't understand and all of his most powerful dream interpreters can't even do anything for him and he's just confused it just so reminds us that you are God. The interpretation of the dream belongs to you. You can use us as vessels of mercy in the same way that you use Joseph. Lord, keep us from ever skirting the truth, thinking that we can somehow be a peacemaker by suppressing the truth. Keep us from arrogance. Keep us from godlessness where we could take particular situations and try to spin them to our own benefit without first and foremost and most importantly our thought for your glory. Lord, it is so easy for us to find ourselves in a scenario, have good insight on something because of what we read in our Bibles and just not even mention that it came from God. Every time we have that opportunity, we should say, God says, and then share the truth. Lord, we need boldness to be able to do this. I believe that you gave Joseph a boldness that was outside of him. We need insight to be able to do this, which I believe you gave Joseph. And we need our eyes open to the many opportunities. Joseph could have sat idle, rotting in an Egyptian prison, thinking there's no opportunity for anything here. And the reality is, you were setting the stage for the exact opportunities you wanted him to have while he had the exact resources that you wanted him to have so that he would give the answer that you wanted to be heard in the ears of the Egyptians. It's beautiful. Thank you for that reminder tonight. I pray that it would help us to be steadfast in anything you call us to. And I pray that if you're calling us to be passionate about something that we think we're not passionate about, change our hearts, convict us, and cause us to follow you wholeheartedly. God, you are incredibly good. Um, Your ways are higher than our ways. We say it every week and we'll say it again. We thank you for Jesus and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.